3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Rwandri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. And so with that, let's start the show. How are we all? Welcome to Wednesday Breakfast. Thank you. Welcome to you as well. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I've been actually I've been starting to like exercise a bit more this week, which has been really nice. Mm, it's healthy. Yeah, I'm trying to be healthy <laughs> <laughs> before I like eat too much over the next few months. So mm. yeah. How have your weeks been? What have you guys been up to? Just been working a lot before Christmas. Yeah. So just flat out tired as I'm sure a lot of us all are, but mm. yeah. Mm. Yeah. Boring. I'm dragging my feet a little bit. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to the break. Mm-hmm. I'm also winding up at the end of a, like winding up my job because I'm going overseas. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I've got, I, yeah, lots of loose ends to tie up. And this is journalism related, is it? Or my current job? No, no. no. So I'm um, yeah, technically leaving my current job to, to do journalism related yes. stuff. Yes. Yeah. 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 Great. Yeah. Um, well, jumping into the show this week, we've actually got quite a lot happening. So at 7.15, we have a recording from Beyond Zero Emissions, which is Actually, I listened to like a few of the shows at 3CR, and this is, I think they do some really great, great work. Awesome. And so we've got Vivian Langford speaking with a group from Kiribati about how their communities are preparing for climate change. Mm-hmm. And so this episode, there's a lot of climate change-focused stuff, because this is the second week of COP25. And, you know, it's really important to hear what's happening on the front line and the people who are really trying to get stuff happening from a community level. Then at 7.30, who have we got coming in? Um, we have Chris Stenton. He's the founder of the Asylum Seeker and Refugee Toy Drive, and he's going to come into the studio today to talk to us about the charity and how people can get involved. Great. And then at 7.45, we've got Jamie Muglin, who is a climate activist, and she's a queer Jewish Latina activist and co-founder of the climate organisation Zero Hour. Then at 8, we have David Spratt coming in to have a talk, talk about essentially social collapse. Um, He does a lot of work about what's happening this century, kind of big picture zooming out, and what are sort of perhaps some of the causes and factors that are possibly leading to a social collapse this century or what we can do to avoid it. And then to finish up at 8.12, we have Indigenous Rights Radio with Charlene Ferris, who's from Cultural Survival, and he'll be speaking with various Indigenous communities about how they are also preparing for climate change and practising resiliency by adapting their traditional knowledge and techniques. Wow. So a lot of interesting interviews and recordings coming up. Um, but before then, we have some alternative news. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're going to have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. Let's get right down to the real nitty-gritty now. Double beaten, 
So yesterday in New South Wales, people had to abandon their houses because of soaring temperatures and hot, gusty winds, which worsened the bushfires in the state. Air quality in Sydney also worsened, causing a thick layer of smoke, disrupting transport and prompting health warnings. Smoke alarms were set off in schools and businesses and some students were forced to stay indoors. Over um, the day over Tuesday, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison received more criticism than usual online, on Twitter especially, for starting the day with a press conference where he mostly addressed the volcanic eruption on White Island in New Zealand. Um, and then later in the day, he delivered a press conference in Sydney to release the second version of the religious discrimin- the religious freedom bill. Online criticism began with the first conference and grew with the second, and many people complained that the Prime Minister's ignoring the people's concerns about the fires and uh, that he's pursuing his own interests. At least six people have died in the fires, which have destroyed more than 680 homes and burned more than 2 million hectares of bushland since they began in September. Some parts of Sydney uh, had an air quality index reading on Tuesday that was 11 times higher than safe levels. And there are now 100 fires burning across uh, New South Wales and Victoria as of yesterday. Um, since September, Scott Morrison and other politicians like Gladys Berejiklian have been dodging questions from journalists about climate change, saying that it wasn't the time or it wasn't appropriate to discuss it. Uh, Scott Morrison told ABC Radio in November that there was no credible scientific evidence that cutting carbon emissions in Australia would reduce the severity of Australian bushfires, though he did admit that climate change was a global issue that does influence bushfires generally. He denied that Australia's carbon footprint is directly linked to bushfires in in the country. He said that to suggest at just 1.3% of global emissions that Australia doing something more or less would change the fire outcome this season doesn't stand up to any credible scientific evidence at all. The Times uh, fact-checked the 1.3% global emissions number that Scott Morrison mentioned and revealed that if you also include our coal, oil and gas exports, the number is actually around 5%. And this is backed by research by the Science and Policy Institute Climate Analytics. Climate Analytics actually argues that on a per capita basis, Australia's carbon footprint, including exports, surpasses China, the US and India. So I think that maybe you can't really throw the baby out with the bathwater and just because Australia only contributes, uh, sorry, just because Australia, well, only, I guess, not that it's a tiny number, contributes 5% to global emissions, including our exports, it doesn't really mean that we shouldn't reduce that amount given the link between worsening fires generally and climate change. Um, so I just wanted to know what you think about the government's stance and why they're really dodging the fact that we could be reducing our emissions, even if it doesn't immediately make the fires um, more just, tolerable. I just get really mad at the fact that any, any any contribution to this is a big enough contribution to be worried about. And just him saying that is just like a big slap in the face to all of us. Like it's it's not a viable excuse. Like it just doesn't. The thing that I find interesting, it's a very selective use of the logic Mm. of it's only 1.3% because Mm. I saw an interesting comparison online that those weren't the words said when we were entering any war that we've entered in our history. And similarly, like the percentages were quite small, but still seen as significant and important to contribute. And so it's just interesting the way that that logic is used very Mm. selectively Mm. um, over time. 
But I, I, on the the comment of the smoke yesterday, I think it was kind of ironic that the uh, the RFS had to be evacuated because of the smoke entering the building. Yeah, I saw <laughs> pictures about that. Yeah. yeah, I just think people love our coal exporting sector and both like the two major parties aren't or just won't consider um, kind of, of too much. yeah, capping it, putting in kind of mm. rules around it to reduce it. There's too much at stake for both parties to lose if they do yeah. go against that and it's just, it's just one of the problems of our politics. Yeah. And so in the wake of the bushfires, um, there has been an article released by some professors at the University of Illinois at Chicago, Florida State and California Polytechnic State University. This article is about post-disaster cleanup. Um, obviously, it's expensive, time-consuming, but also very wasteful. And there's been a lot of research into it with no research done into how to sustainably clean up anything after like after um, disasters have torn through. Um, researchers who study urban engineering, disaster management and planning see this as a critical and understudied problem. Um, disasters are going to continue to happen, especially when our leaders are not taking full responsibility in helping to helping with climate change and the effects of it. Um, societies urgently need better strategies for dealing with the wastes um, these events leave behind, as we've seen in Australia with the bushfires burning through and probably will continue to burn through this summer. Disasters commonly produce thousands to millions of tonnes of debris in a single event. Um, It's debris from wildfires largely consist of ash-contaminated soils, metal and concrete, along with other structural debris and household hazardous items. It's They are dangerous in a way to, obviously, humans, our sake, but also the environment. Um... That's to we are going towards reusing disaster waste. Um, they actually these professors actually held an expert workshop in May 2019 where they identified steps for sustainably managing disaster debris and waste. The key tasks are obviously to identify what is contained in these wastes, find better approaches to recycling and reuse, design new technologies to identify hazardous components and sort the different types of waste and to develop markets to promote reuse and recycling. Currently, this is in, not in effect. It's really when disasters strike, it's a panic and, you know, everyone's obviously trying to help human lives, and, but the environment is obviously neglected quite a lot in this. Um, so there's been quite a lot of talk now, especially with the rise of natural disasters worldwide, as to how to sort of, especially in studies and university studies of urban engineering and planning so I just thought it was quite interesting to look at that sort of sustainable side of it now that people are sort of having to think about that yeah yeah absolutely Mm. well thanks guys um before we play a quick game before our first interview we have some community service announcements you're listening to 3CR Breakfast six years I've been Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you yours. to all What's of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The bigger the reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things unfold. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. 
But also, while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully, it goes, it keeps going. You know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor, because real power comes from here, and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 9419 You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and before we jump into our first interview, we have a little game called... Play with the numbers. So, Lois, do you want to explain? Yes, so I give everyone a number... Um, and it's up to everyone to figure out what news story it's linked to. And the numbers can be anything from changes made to laws, money, population, statistics, you name it. So we're getting more advanced every week. It's it, the, the pool is widening. It is. It it's be. widening. Yeah. These are all yeah current numbers linked to current stories. Most of them are pretty massive numbers. And the first one that we're starting with is 527.9 million. 527.9 million. million. I, my hunch is something to do maybe with like climate refugees. Oh, I feel like it actually would be bigger. No, not, not very close. Okay. Sorry. Um, is it domestic related? It's domestic related, yeah. Is it what, something to do with water? No, not to do or with resources. the environment. Okay. Okay. Yeah, not to do with the environment. Or any re- sort of resource. Okay. Interesting. I I'm hmm. Can you what's a, what's another hint? Um it's linked to a particular commission, the Royal Commission that's happening at the moment. There are a few though, so Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which one? Um, uh give it to us. So it's um the cost. So five hundred and twenty seven point nine million dollars is the cost of the three year Royal Commission into violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation of people with disability. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um I was reading an article in the Courier Mail about one of the commissioners who uh, is an Indigenous woman, Andrea, Mace, and Andrea Mason, and she is encouraging First Nations people to share their stories in the commission. Mm, wow. Uh, yeah, so the next number is smaller, and it is 11. 11. Ah, is this the number of new ministries that Scott Morrison has introduced? No, I don't know the number for that, but that would be interesting. This is, yeah, this happened yesterday. A number of votes? Uh, no. No, happened yesterday. It's linked to a new a draft bill. Were we talking about it before? The um, assisted... Oh, no, no. sorry, not that one. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, to do with the religious discrimination. Yeah. 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 So it's the number of key changes okay. um, in okay. the second version of the religious discrimination bill. That's a halfway, mm-hmm. I think. Um, yeah, <laughs> getting there. And um, two of the key changes were... Um, that health practitioners will not have the right to refuse patients' treatment on the basis of religious belief. Um, But another change was that um, uh, conferences and camps will be able to discriminate on the basis of religion against potential customers as long as they publish their policy that explains their rules and ethos. Mm -hmm. Next number is in the international news landscape and it's 22 million 
Mm, it's not population. 22 million. Oh, I'm so bad at this. <laughs> <laughs> it's surprisingly hard when you hear a number out yeah. of context to think, yeah. like, is it numbers? Is Overthinking it everything, every possible Yeah, number. just like flicking through yeah. every news article you've read in the last week. Three, four hours. <laughs> oh, wait, yeah. <laughs> I'll just give it to you. So this is $22 million. It's the... Um, Amount that um, Nissan Motors um, chairman Carlos Ghosn um, is likely to be fined um, because Japan's markets watchdog uh, recommended that he be fined 2.4 billion yen or 22 million dollars for underreporting uh, his um, salary by about 9.1 billion yen. Sorry, over a period of, of 10 years, he's denied wrongdoing. Anyway, he's been in jail over it. But uh, the next number is local. It's a domestic figure, and it's eight hundred and ninety million. Eight hundred and ninety. And more million. linked to the theme of of this week's program. So environment, environment. <laughs> yeah. Eight hundred ninety million. Is it a dollar figure? It is. Okay. Is it something to do with like the amount of money that's been required to be spent on combating the fires, or kind of? It's to do with yeah something a um, MP from Queensland is trying to Push. get um, yeah pushed. Mm, okay, yeah, great. To, okay. Uh, so it's eight hundred and ninety million dollars. Uh, Michael Berkman, he's the sole Greens MP in the Queensland State Parliament. He's proposed to raise eight hundred and ninety million dollars through a levy on coal and gas corporations. A one dollar royalty premium over three years is intended to help fund uh, the Queensland fire services yeah, with great. the money raised. That's great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. some cool progressive politics. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for finishing yeah. on a high note. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, um, before jumping into our first recording, um, actually, our first recording is Vivian Langford. So she's from Beyond Zero Emissions. So she's part of uh, the broader 3CR network and has a really great podcast. I definitely recommend having a listen. And they do some great sort of investigative work. Um, and so this re recording, they speak with uh, people from Kiribati about how their communities are preparing for climate change. This item is about the island of Kiribati. They had been doing a six-week course through the Edmund Rice Centre. It was a huge variety of projects. One woman was there uh, preparing the Olympic team. She said they have a famous weightlifter on Kiribati called David Kato Ato. He's a weightlifter and he's a champion. And he's also an advocate about climate change. There was also a young teacher and he was worried about the king tides that were sweeping away the schools or, you know, just sweeping through the schools and washing away their books. The next person to speak was Pelanisi Alofa. She was from a group called Kirikan, which is the uh, Kiribati Climate Action Network. And she was very concerned about the pigs that they were roaming about and that their excrement could actually be used instead of diesel fuel, to power their lights. She said, we can turn this problem of pigs into a solution through bio a biodigester. And the people who were helping them with that were the University of Bath. They're also the University of South Pacific and the Queensland University have been getting behind these projects. So here we have Pelanisi Alofa. We do not accept that people are living in an unhealthy environment because there is no control or management of pigs on Tarawa. We believe, I believe that Tarawa can be very clean, can be very healthy and beautiful if there is proper control of animals and especially pigs. 
The reality is that so many pigs are roaming around the island. The pig pens are smelly and untidy. Animals and humans are sharing the same small space of land. Most pigs are tied by the legs, and when they are free or they escape, they destroy the gardens or destroy um, the neighbor's gardens. But the root of the problem, I feel, is the lack of knowledge by local people about the impact of living with animals. If you have a digester, and from a digester it's connected to the home, straight into your stove, that's all. The manure in, yes. Yes. So you can go to different houses. So if the community have one community, like four communities, if we have four community pig pens, people put their pigs together and they get just one bucket mixed with water to put in the digester, you know, it will produce gas. And is that, is that producing the gas? Yes. 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 Is it expensive? For one... The project that USP is doing is like 5,000. And is the local expertise to maintain the digester? And is, it, is the digester powered by like electricity? No, no. No, it's just the biogas. The expertise will come from USP. They have them there. So that's why we put capacity building, because they have to train the local people to look after it, and they can do it in other communities. They'll train our people in Kirikan so we can continue to do it in other communities. So from this, from this um, there will be a refuse eh? from the digester that can go straight into the gardens. We'll, we'll get the funding. school teachers called Mauricio spoke to us about his desire for children to speak better English, to reach higher standards so, so they can go to New Zealand or Australia for higher education. And he said teachers were becoming discouraged by just this terrible um, salty water getting into their wells by the school being flooded quite often and the materials being destroyed and damaged. He said he'd like the Australian Prime Minister to come over. He invited him to come to Giribas to see for himself so he would make the transition away from coal and gas. It seemed very innocent and very gentle, this invitation. If only you would come, you would see. He uh, could have that heart. You know. Heart is very important. I think we know that our government is so much more hard-hearted they can go to the Pacific, but they are not going to see what they don't want to see, which is the climate change that we are exporting. This person is called Mauricio. Actually, we don't have money to, you know, to, to pay him to change and uh, you know, to, to go for uh, to transition. But we, we, just, we can simply say to him that, uh, why don't you come to Kiribati and see for yourself experience and uh, and see the people, the young people who are being uh, affected and some of them have been displaced internally okay they have to move as you've seen in the um, in the presentation so I think that's we will give him we will invite him to to, to come to Kiribati and, and to see him uh, with his own eyes and uh, 
and again we will uh, um, uh, <coughs> um, lobby and uh, we will share we we'll share with them all the stories that we we have uh, shared with you and uh, may probably it would be uh, you could have that heart you know heart is very important yeah um, that's a really good point I mean nothing quite mm -hmm impacts on you as much mm -hmm. as actually going to Kiribati, mm -hmm. going to Tavali, <coughs> seeing the reality for yourself. In, in my sort of occasional nightmare during the dragging Alan Jones there. Then I spoke to a, a lady who travels miles in her work. She's an education officer. She goes all around the scattered islands in the vast ocean. They used to be called the Gilbert Islands. Now they're part of Kiribati. There are 33 inhabited islands and with a population of about 113 people. Her name is Rakantai. And these people are not sinking into the ocean, these people are fighting back and this lady has um, written a poem to her granddaughter and I'd like you to listen to it. And this is my message to my granddaughter, Rakantai. Rakantai, my heart, I will make sure nothing will happen to you. Grow up on an island the land of your ancestors. Grow up on an island to learn its richness culture. Grow up on an island to strengthen your identity. Grow up on an island to equip you well for the future. Grow up on an island that will remain today and forever. Grow up on an island and that is an islander's right. And she told me that that little baby is three months old today. Yes. Tell us again her name. Um, her name is Rondoy and today is uh, a third month. It's, it is, uh, I was very happy to compose this poem just in the right time of yes. uh, uh, date, birth date. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to say a bit more about the children, your hopes for the children who are going to school in Kiribati now and who will be, you know, old people in the year 2100 but will be gone but what do you hope for them yes and this is my message to my my, my granddaughter not only for my granddaughter but all for all the children in in Kiribati and in the Pacific um, we they are going to stay on the islands they have to fight for justice they don't want to have debate um, but they want justice and fair treatment from the bigger countries like Australia. Our listeners, most of us won't know what children growing up in Kiribati learn, but I believe there are some exchange programs where Australian children are now going to these islands and sitting there for a couple of weeks and listening and observing, and certainly some children from Kiribati are coming on exchange to Australia and to other countries. But tell us, if you stayed in Kiribati and you were a child, what would you be learning? What are the teachers aiming for? Uh, the main... Uh aim for the Ministry of Education is for the students to to have quality education and in the education system uh, we have Western education and the, 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 the Ministry of Education incorporates the traditional skills in, uh, in, into the curriculum to equip the students uh, for, for the future. When they have a chance to go to Australia for further studies or in, in some part of the world, they can able to survive and understand things because they have been trained and learned those kind of things in Kiribati, just like the English 
and other sort of things that they can help them to uh, adapt to the new environment when they have a chance to. What are the traditional skills that the teachers teach them? Uh, the tr- some of the, tra- the traditional skills that the, the student uh, that the, the, the student have been learning is cultivating papai, cutting uh, tori, fishing, navigation skills. Some only basic skills that can build the student understanding, and they will able to to leave, to leave when they don't have a chance to go to overseas for mm-hmm. further studies they can live on yeah. on the islands okay. and i saw in your photos uh, quite a lot of mangrove planting so they're doing learning skills for the sort of climate future as well aren't they to preserve the coastline yes now they are, they, they they're really worried about their highlands and their schools so what they have to do is they understand now because it is part of their curriculum and um, they, they, they are willing to participate in any um, planting mangroves activities that, that, w- that will um, help their, con- their, their highlands from being eroded. Thank you very much. Could you just say your name again? Um, my name is Irakentai Momoeto Moma from Kiripes. That was Vivian Langford from Beyond Zero Emissions. Uh, she was speaking with a group from Kiribati about how their communities are preparing for climate change. Now we're welcoming Chris Senton into the studio. He's going to talk to us about the Refugee and Asylum Seeker Toy Drive. So welcome, Chris. Good morning. Thanks for having me in. Appreciate no, no it. No problem. So firstly, I'd just like um, for you to tell us a bit about the Refugee and Asylum Seeker Toy Drive and what its aim is. Yeah, cool. Well, um, what a lot lot of uh, people don't know is that there's about 10,000 Refugee and Asylum Seeker children all over Australia, and they literally are in every corner of the country. Um, there's a lot in regional areas and in the cities as well. And so our simple aim is to try and get each of them a toy. Fantastic. Yeah. And um, I note that you have experience working with asylum seekers both in and out of detention for over 10 years. Can you tell us a bit about how this influenced your decision to create the Toy Drive charity? Yeah, of course. Look, um, it really is beneficial, I suppose. It really sort of taught me like from both sides of the fence, I suppose, in terms of just seeing their experience and their struggles and everything and I think the um, people can have views about asylum seekers and refugees as well but the children really sort of don't have a say in any of that and so I really saw them as being sort of these real victims of sort of both sides of the argument and um, believe it or not we get so busy supporting them through so many issues like you know everything from housing to health to immigration issues that the kids really kind of get forgotten about and so it was really about the five-year mark, about halfway through, that one day I just clicked and went, hang on, these kids don't get any toys and they don't have any toys. And I think given the level of dis- displacement, um, just everything that they've been through, what playing actually does to actually help them was just huge. And especially around a, um, a time of year where so many other kids, regardless of religion or anything, are actually getting toys, it was just a further sort of mechanism of further social isolation. And so... Just jumped in and I just had an idea, literally it was on, on, on like um, a night in November 2015, I posted a uh, post to my personal Facebook wall, um, has anyone got any toys and it's just grown. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So is that when it began in 2015? How has it, it evolved did. since then? Oh, wow. So the first year was um, pretty crazy. Like we sort of um, received everything from secondhand toys to donations to just anything at all. 
over the first three years, we provided 1,200 toys. Um, so it was kind of scattered around and it was just sort of like a little sort of um, project. Uh, last year's where it took off, we got a uh, toy company involved. So I'd like to give a shout out to Moose Toys. Um, so last year they came on board, they gave 2,400 toys, which meant overall we gave out 3,700 toys, which was across the entire Melbourne metro area. And um, this year it was a, uh, it's just been an aim of ours to to try and reach every single kid across the country. Yeah. And and how does it work? How do people donate toys to the charity? And then how do those toys find their way to kids' hands? Yeah, of course. Look, um, what we learned that first year that accepting secondhand toys is a big sort of undertaking un- unto itself. Um, unfortunately, people, what I've found is people have a really high emotional attachment to old toys and so we would be getting a lot of stuff that just couldn't be handed on mm-hmm. and believe it or not some people you know in good faith w- would actually donate toy soldier sets and, and other stuff so in terms of what's appropriate and not it really after the first year we really sort of only try to accept um, either brand new toys or cash um, we do have um, partners where we can go buy things at discounted rates as well so we can obviously use that cash uh, really, really well. And um, something I'm extremely proud of as well is that 100% of donations go to the kids. So that's, um, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. And is it something that only individuals can contribute to? Or do you have businesses that during the holiday period jump on board and do kind of drives at their work? Yeah, yeah. Look, it, it really has um, grown. Um Maybe here I'll give a shout out to two organisations. So we've had two organisations in the last probably month or so who have actually made sizable donations. So in um, Melbourne, there was Decibel Architecture. They uh, recently donated 3,000. Wow. And also Emergency Management Services as well. So they match that as well. Um, we also have another of other um, companies that are actually sort of holding like their own little toy drives at work where they'll collect up brand new toys and there's a local business called Store Local Storage, uh, which they've been so kind to sort of grant us storage space there. So we've been able to sort of fill that space up and kind of operate out of there. And it's just been amazing. And so there really is like so many ways for people to get involved. Um, as I said, I've got companies doing sort of like small collections and others just donating cash. Yeah. Fantastic. And yeah. over the couple of years that it's been around, yeah. how have the volunteers contributed? Do you have like a bunch of volunteers that work tirelessly to yeah. to make it all happen? Oh, look, of course, of course. I mean, I've even been a little bit unwell. So, I mean, I haven't been sort of able to do as much as I'd liked. But um, no, there definitely has been. I mean, all throughout the whole journey, like this is the fifth year now, and I just wouldn't be able to be, be done without people sort of coming in to help. And um the part I love is that, I mean, it creates so much joy. And so I don't know why more people don't want to get involved. Mm. Um, I might just do a quick um, shout out here. Like we do actually have a website now. Um, mm. and at, Actually, I'd like to give huge thanks to uh, Rosemary and Anthony at um, Online is Easy. They basically donated their time and cash to get the website up. The website's got heaps of uh, photos of kids getting toys and sort of stuff going on. So I'd uh, suggest everyone head there. Uh, the website is rastoydrive.org.au and um, basically there's also links there where you can volunteer, donate cash, find out a bit more about us. But um, definitely, look, I really love people to uh, get involved. I mean, something I'm extremely 
proud of and the role I see myself really is as a facilitator. It's really about trying to bridge the gap between people who want to give and the people who get and I really try and make that experience close. Um, you know, and we are going to be actually having a couple of events this year as well where we're going to actually personally be um, handing the toys out. Yeah, great. Which would be amazing. Can I ask, so over the, yeah. sort of the period that you've been sort of doing this amazing program, yes. what's something that's kind of unexpected that you sort of come across during this whole process that you've seen about like community and people and yeah. coming together? that's a really good question. Look, I'm, I might have already touched on it earlier, but it was last year at, at a uh, end of year event. Um, everyone was having an amazing time. It was, you know, a lot of... Uh, laughter and fun and there was a mum that came up to me and started to cry and I was kind of like you know why are you upset and she just gave so much thanks and she said that um, you know they were they'd been here for about five years and, and she actually said to me that her son hadn't had a brand new toy for that whole time mm. and it was really at that point that it really hit home the importance of what we do like I know here in Australia, because kids have such readily, you know, they're readily able to access toys from a whole range of areas, even if they are poor, there's a whole range of services that they can tap into. I think people forget that these really are the forgotten children of Australia because the only support programs that they're kind of linked into are designed really to keep tabs on them, not to support them. Mm. So they're really there to sort of, you know, yeah, basically report back to the Department of Immigration there status and everything and so these people really get trained and they come from countries as well where you can't really ask for help and so I think people forget that these people not only are fleeing war fleeing trauma they're socially isolated they're experiencing extreme levels of financial hardship and so I think it's just very easy to sort of forget about that and geez I could get really emotional here <laughs> but but one single toy to one kid just does the world of difference. I mean, I've seen it firsthand. <laughs> As I said, I'm going to start crying already, but it's just, it's such a beautiful thing and it's such a simple thing. And I think, um, as I said, I think people, when these kids have been through so much trauma, the ability to play, the ability to, to sort of tap into your imagination, really kind of free yourself is just such a powerful thing. And I think not only that, but the flip side of it as well is, um, it really instills trust and that the Australian community does care about them, does want to give, does want to share. And so, as I said, just to be the facilitator of that is just so freaking awesome. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And for people who want to get involved and donate toys, yeah. they go to your website? Or yeah, yeah, of course. Look, as I said, something I'm really proud of is being very, very grassroots. So it's not about me. It's not about everyone else. It's really about um, people being able to do, you know, given certain constraints um, to, to be involved in any way that they'd like. Um, so definitely head to the website, as I said, at RAS Toy Drive, all our contact details there. Um, that's basically how you can sort of connect with us. Um, there's no stupid questions at all. There's like an email address there and, and we'll get back to you. And as I said, like this really is about connecting people up. And as I said, like, it, as I said, it's just such a privilege to be able to sort of receive things and give things. Yeah. Great, fantastic. And um, one last question. Yeah. What's the perfect kind of gift? What kind of size? Yeah, wow. I mean, I don't think there is such a thing. I mean, no. we, we do um, tailor to like all, all age groups. So mm -hmm. um, for us, you know, probably obviously maybe the 5 to 12 age range and it's obviously nothing involving any shooting or sort of army-based stuff. But um, 
really anything at all. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for coming and having a chat to us about the Asylum Seeker and Refugee Toy Drive, Chris. No, my pleasure, guys. Cheers. Appreciate it. So you're listening to 3CR Breakfast, and we're going to throw to a song. We've got Tim Mayer with the song Do Lene Al Puntal. did it. Stonington presents Carols at Como Park. Join host Rob Mills, X Factors Isaiah Firebrace, and more for Carols at Como Park. South Yarra will come alive with song and good cheer at this much loved Christmas event. Bring the friends and family and be sure to stay for the spectacular fireworks display. Carols at Como Park, Sunday, 15th of December from 7 30 pm. Visit the City of Stonington website for details. 
a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. And just before we had Chris Denton, who's been the founder of the Asylum Seeker and Refugee Toy Drive. It was really, really great. Um, and then up next, we've got a recording from Jamie Margolin. So given that this is the second week of COP25 in Madrid, we're talking a lot about environment this week and climate change, and particularly people who are on the ground in the grassroots doing some really incredible work. And so Jamie Margolin, she's a queer Jewish Latina climate activist and co-founder of the climate organization Zero Hour. Colonialism, patriarchy, and racism. By solving these issues, we are both addressing the roots of the climate crisis and solving the social justice issues that oppress us. So it's a win-win. Many people pin the start of the climate crisis to the Industrial Revolution. That was when we started digging for coal, mining fossil fuels out of the ground, and burning them. But it actually started long before that. Colonization started the climate crisis and all of the practices it brought. With colonization, European settlers destroyed natural habitats hunted species to death, and brought in invasive plant species that indigenous and African slaves were forced to grow. With colonialism came the extreme extraction of the earth and the genocide and silencing of the indigenous wisdom of the peoples that have been keeping this earth alive for centuries. With colonialism came the idea that everything on this earth is made for our extraction and that everything is to be bought and sold. According to an article, about early Western colonialism and Encyclopedia Britannica, when colonizers arrived to the Americas, they immediately thought of the land, the water, and all of the natural resources in front of them as theirs to claim and extract. Why this entitlement? Because unless someone had explicitly bought the land with a system of currency they valued, it was seen as free pickings. So with colonialism came the idea that nothing, not air, not water, not trees, not animals, not land, was sacred or priceless. And this mindset is the core of how we got to climate disaster. So that's why before the first coal was mined, even before the first factories were opened, the seeds for the climate crisis had already been planted. And the colonialism that caused the climate crisis is still playing out today. For example, former colonized countries emit the least amount of carbon dioxide, but feel the worst effects of the climate crisis. And even though, yes, countries in the global south, like India, do emit large amounts of pollutants, it is because the United States ships our factories overseas so poor people of color can do our dirty work. American corporations save money exploiting workers in India and polluting their air, water, and people. While the poor communities are poisoned and suffer, rich communities in the United States buy these products and enjoy the luxuries of these products without actually having to feel the toxic effects of producing them. It's the same colonial system of forcing people of color to produce and pay the price for luxuries for those in rich white countries. Colonialism never went away. It just evolved. And then there's a next system of oppression very much intertwined with colonialism, racism. There's compelling evidence that increasing social inequality is linked to environmental degradation and that the health of people of color and those living in poverty is negatively impacted by being exposed to higher levels of environmental pollutants than their white and wealthy counterparts. The vast majority of fossil fuel projects and energy extraction sites are built in low-income communities, immigrant communities, and communities of color. Why? 
because these communities are already victims of the racist system of oppression, and governments and corporations can exploit their vulnerability. A 2008 report, co-authored by the NRDC, reviewed data collected over 20 years and found that more than half the people living within two miles of toxic waste facilities in the United States are people of color. A report in 2016 by the Center for Effective Government, now called the Project for Governmental Oversight, found that people of color are nearly twice as likely, twice as likely as white residents to live within a fence line zone of an industrial facility. The effects of the climate crisis, such as extreme weather conditions, have devastating consequences for communities of color and low-income communities. In the aftermath of such disasters, efforts to rebuild communities of color and low-income communities are often completely inadequate compared to efforts to rebuild higher income and white communities. The most powerful example of this inequity is the communities of color in New Orleans that were affected by Hurricane Katrina. Black homeowners received $8,000 less per family in government aid than white homeowners due to disparities in housing values. In 2013, about 80% of the mostly black residents of the city's Lower Ninth Ward had not returned to their community due to inadequate recovery and rebuilding efforts by the government. None of these examples are a coincidence. Because people of color and immigrants are already victims of racism, they're more vulnerable to corporations targeting them because wealthy white citizens have the money, power, and our current racist system on their side, corporations would not be able to get away with building toxic chemical or extraction plants in those wealthy white neighborhoods. Take, for example, the Dakota Access Pipeline. A fossil fuel pipeline designed to transport up to half a million barrels of crude oil daily from North Dakota to Illinois. According to ABC News, the construction of the pipeline was originally going to be built through a majority white and non-Indigenous community. But when that community rejected it, in the interest of protecting their water and the health of their citizens, it was then rerouted to instead be built on Indigenous land. And even though there was massive pushback against the construction of this pipeline on the sacred Indigenous land, the outcry of the Native peoples was ultimately not respected at all, and the pipeline was built anyway on the Indigenous land. Prominent activist Reverend Jesse Jackson called the reroute of the Dakota Access Pipeline the ripest case of environmental racism I've seen in a long time. On top of colonialism and racism, there is another system of oppression affecting us, patriarchy. Women are more affected by the climate crisis than men. Roles as primary caregivers and providers of food and fuel for our communities make us more vulnerable when flooding and drought occur. According to the BBC, in Central Africa, where up to 90% of Lake Chad has disappeared, nomadic indigenous groups are particularly at risk. As the lake shoreline recedes, women have to walk farther and farther to collect water for their communities. In the dry season, men head off to the towns, leaving women to take care of their communities. With dry seasons now becoming longer and longer due to climate change, women are working harder and harder to feed and care for our families without support and with less and less resources. That's an example of the climate crisis disproportionately affecting women, and women, being victims of patriarchy, having the burden of dealing with the effects of the climate crisis and it falling on our shoulders. And it is not just women in rural areas who are affected. Women are more likely than men to experience poverty and have less socioeconomic power, according to the United Nations. This makes it difficult to recover from disasters which affect infrastructure, jobs, and housing. 
due to the patriarchal system of oppression that has been holding us back for thousands and thousands of years, we are more affected by the climate crisis, even as we bear the weight of rebuilding and caring for our communities after disaster. This is how systems of oppression intertwine with the climate crisis. People of color, women, poor folks, people with disabilities, people with chronic illnesses, queer people, homeless folks, everyone who is already oppressed, vulnerable, and disadvantaged by society is disproportionately affected by the climate crisis. And these same systems of oppression also helped cause the climate crisis. Now, climate change on its own seems like a huge and insurmountable problem by itself. Factor in the full story and the problem becomes even bigger than that. In order to save our lives, futures, the planet, and everything we hold dear, change needs to happen on a much bigger scale than we initially thought. Climate change demands much bigger and harder solutions than we initially thought. The media, our leaders, businesses, and global corporations need to address climate change not as a standalone issue floating separately from everything else, but instead as the grand culmination of all our societal injustices that have been building up for centuries. And it is our responsibility to speak truth to power, call out these systems of oppression, and demand the livable earth that we all deserve. We have to demand that those in power get to the roots of the climate crisis and tackle the systems of oppression that caused it in the first place. Thank you. That was Jamie Margolin, who's a queer Jewish Latina climate activist and co-founder of the climate organization Zero Hour, speaking about some of her work over there. Um, and so up next, before our interview at eight with David Spratt, we've got another song, which is by Alice Ivy called Chasing Stars. John is from Sally.
QR code is an LGBTIQA plus health podcast made by queers. Across eight episodes, hear us engaging with our communities discussing diverse and intersecting topics on In Your Face on the last Friday of every month or download from 3cr.org.au forward slash QR code. And follow us on Facebook at QR code 3CR. Funded by the City of Yarra. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. Hi, this is Katie from Little Birdie and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. We need your help to support public radio and your local music scene. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and on the line we have David Spratt. So David Spratt is the Research Director at the Breakthrough Institute for Climate Restoration, co-author of Climate Code Red and What Lies Beneath, and is a world-leading expert on the science of the climate and ecological emergency. Welcome, David. Good morning. So I wanted to ask, so within like this whole broader environmental movement that's going on at the moment there are so many different you know topics to champion research and fight for we see people who are really standing up for pollution people standing up for deforestation climate change resource consumption there's there's so many issues and so amongst all of these topics why in particular are you drawn towards promoting and discussing about human social collapse well I'm not sure that climate change should be seen as an environmental or green issue in the first instance. Um, I think that might be a mischaracterisation of the problem. Um, We know that um, the organisations that largely campaigned first and loudest on climate change were environment organisations and they did a great job in getting the issue up there. But I think it's a mischaracterisation because while it's about the physical system... um, uh, and how it, it and how it will change. The the consequences are uh, uh, profound on human society. So uh, I'm not sure that a green framing is where we want to talk about climate change. The reason why I'm into it is that I came to an understanding that while there are many issues in many ways that uh, there will be bad impacts on society, this is the one that if we don't solve in what is an increasingly short period of time, all the other issues we care about will simply become irrelevant because we may not be here. So uh, I think this is just the most urgent issue of all. Absolutely. And so in terms of of like a lot of your work focuses on social collapse and I guess what are some of the key factors that will increase the risk of social collapse over this century? Well, I mean, I think there's been a, a bit of a disconnect between the physical signs which says, um, you know, as you wrap more of these greenhouse gas blankets around the planet, will get warmer and storms will get stronger and uh, monsoons will shift and we'll get more intense floods and cyclones and so on, uh, and the social consequences, because it's actually sort of quite difficult to, 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 to map out um, what those consequences will be. And, I mean, a really interesting example is Syria, 
where there was a, uh, an epochal drought uh, that forced one and a half million people uh, to shift uh, from the country to the city. Um, you had circumstances where there had been uh, fires in Russia that had forced um, the Russian government to say they were banning wheat exports for six months. You had um, the failure of a monsoon in China, which has also affected uh, wheat exports as a consequence of that the spot price of wheat on the international market tripled, which became a driver of the Arab Spring. And they're sort of all climate consequences which contributed significantly um, to the um, breakdown of civil society and a a terrible war in Syria. And the interesting thing is that nobody saw them really coming. Nobody said, look, we think that Syria's heading for a drought that would have these social consequences. So I think there's been an underplaying or an incapacity to understand... Uh, as in Darfur or, or Mali or Sudan or many other places, um, those climate consequences. And in the end, in the end, if climate change keeps on going the path that it's on now, um, modern human societies as we know them today uh, probably won't exist. And that, that, that's a devastating message that I think policymakers uh, need to understand because uh, if we don't have... Uh, a reasonably ordered international society, um, then business won't be around to make money. Absolutely. And, and so why do you think that humans and human society generally are just, they cannot fathom this? Why can't we foresee collapse? Is there something sort of inbuilt into the way that humans operate or is it just kind of a function of the way our social well, structures are set up? if we had an answer to that, we'd be the most human political uh, <laughs> analysts on the planet, wouldn't we? Um, look, I think there's a number of issues have gone on. The first of all is that um, the science itself is rapidly evolving. Uh, climate science is a relatively new field and it takes a long while to develop. It's also dealing with some, um, uh, some matters. The, the, the physical world is changing very quickly, so they're having to play catch-up all the time. Uh, that's led, um, I think, to an underestimation of the problem. Uh, we wrote a report called What Lies Beneath About This, which looked at the pretty systematic underestimation of the risk, particularly in the work of the UN bodies. And I mean, I think there's a political component uh, to that as well. It's politically convenient um, to say the problem is not as bad as you think it is. So I think there's, there's been... Uh, uh, it's now changing a lack of forthrightness about the physical problem. And then you've had the international policy-making system uh, where one country in 190 can veto any outcome, um, which is a really lowest common denominator... Uh, process. I mean, when you've got, um, I mean, Australia's bad enough, but uh, Saudi Arabia, the Gulf, states, the Gulf states and Russia and any one of them can just disagree with anything in any climate agreement and it gets thrown out. Uh, that's a, a problem. Uh, and I think that the problem is, so, is now so big and has such long-term consequences to the political and the business system, which are both focused on the sort of the one to three year time horizon. Uh, actually find it difficult, impossible or inconvenient uh, to think about the problem as it, as it really exists. So there's been a, a constant desire amongst policymakers and those who advise them, including fossil fuel companies, to say that this can be fixed within a business as usual. Uh, you know, the economy will go along, no big problem, we can fix this and have, it, have our cake and eat it too. And that's simply not true anymore. Yeah, I wanted to touch on what you also were speaking before about big international kind of structures like the Conference of Parties. And we're seeing the sort of Conference Parties 25 happening in Madrid at the moment. 
based on this, what have been some of the, I guess, the more positive developments, if there have been any, in through that whole COP25, if you've been following it? And then what are some of the not-so-good developments? Well, look, uh, I have a fairly joint issue in the national policy making. I think the process is, 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 is dying, it's not dead. Um, we've had this process going on for 25 years. In that period of time, the amount of greenhouse gases in the air has uh, you know, gone up 30 or 40%. Um, the agreement in Paris uh, three years ago, uh, if the commitments to that agreement were honoured, and they haven't quite been and nothing more was done, we would be heading towards three to five degrees of um, of warming. And, you know, once you get to three or four, they're trying to say that's incompatible with the maintenance of human civilization. So I think the Paris process is, is, is basically broken and dead, but people don't want to admit it. Uh, look, I think, on, on the other hand, there are... Uh, are many things which are actually driving change. I mean, if you have a look, for example, at the change in the cost of technology. I mean, if you said 10 years ago that wind and solar would be cheaper than coal, then it would not be economically feasible to build a new coal-fired power station in Australia, people would have laughed. But, I mean, now the economics of, of, of wind and solar and batteries are, are compelling and more compelling every day. And, I mean, uh, earlier this week, we had a, an announcement saying that power prices would go down in Australia over the next two or three years because more renewables were coming on. I mean, that is that is um, amazing change around. I think that subnational uh, organisations, if you look at what's really driving change in many places in the world now, it's states and cities uh, rather than national governments. I mean, that's certainly the case in Australia. Uh, we've had 1,200 local governments around the world uh, recognise through in the climate emergency and increase their, their, their action. We've seen states like uh, the ACT here in Australia rapidly moving towards 100% renewable energy. So I think it's at that, at that sub-national level that the, that the real change is being driven. Absolutely. I mean, I've seen some of the work that some of the local councils and community organisations are doing, and that's really where some of the best stuff is happening in this space. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, this needs global leadership, and it needs national and international uh, uh, leadership as well. That's sort of uh, a bit irreducible at the moment. Absolutely. Um, I also had a question. You were sort of talking before about, you know, talking about some of the positives of things that are starting to happen. And something I think that's really important to discuss is that in this whole topic of social collapse, there's often like I've often felt feeling sort of inadequate and feeling overwhelmed by what to do. So given that you sort of promote and discuss these topics on a you know a near daily basis, how do you manage your energy levels and look after your, your mental health? Oh, look, I think I've been at it too long, to be honest. Um, I think, I mean, there, there, are, there are various times when I've gone to this a bit and, and gone, God, this is bleak, I can't deal with this, I think I need a break. And, I mean, in 15 years, I've, you know, perhaps a couple of times had a few months off. But um, I just come back to it because, I mean, this is this is an issue of, the, you know, what human civilization and, and the planet and the natural world is going to look like in, mm. in 50 or 100 or, or, or 10 years' time. And... Uh, as I'm baby boomer lefty, I'm sort of, and I crash all the time, so people are probably sick of me. I grant you some uh, edict of uh, pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the spirit sort of get me by. I mean, look, I think there are many things that, that are happening. If you look at the changes in the last 12 months around the world in the politics of climate change, it is amazing. I mean, we've gone in August of 2018, there, I think there were 18 councils that declared climate emergency in the 14 months since. That's gone from 18 to more than 1,200 in, in, in 23 or 24 countries. Um, 
Extinction Rebellion, I think, they had their first event in London in October of last year, which was just 14 months ago. And that, you know, had a, a profound effect in people's understanding, um, a brilliant branding of the problem. Uh, Greta Thunberg, 18 months ago, was an unknown figure. Uh, and now we have the, the student strike for climate uh, movement around the world. Uh, I think in terms of the community engagement and understanding, there's been a huge upsurge, a real renewal uh, coming from the base, which uh, really keeps a lot of people going. I know it's difficult at the moment. I think the the raw emotion to deal with the drought and the fires and, you know, Sydney Harbour being uh, red and orange rather than blue and green is, is, is difficult for people. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's a, it's it's, challenge, it's challenging at the moment, but um, there is a lot of new activism going on. Uh, I think there's a, a new uh, understanding of, of the problem. I, I keep on saying that in the last 18 months, we've had, a, I think, a new realism about the debate. We're actually being honest about the problem for the first time in a long while, and, and that's a necessary step uh, towards getting the full sweep of emergency solutions. And the best time to get involved is right now. Right now, I mean, one thing I might just mention is uh, because of this uh, uh, movement of climate uh, uh, councils around the world uh, declaring climate emergencies, and it's interesting, I mean, during the bushfires, people remember that the mayor of Glen Innes um, up on the Northern Tablelands was on the uh, media talking about the devastating fires which had cost some lives in in her area, and and their council had um, uh, declared a climate emergency a few months ago. I and mean, today I was reading that the water supply for the town of Bellingen in northern New South Wales, where I actually spent some time as a child, um, is now going to have to be replaced by temporary desal. And the, and the, and the Bellingen Council is one of the councils, about the 70 around Australia, that have declared a climate emergency. Uh, so I think at that level we can see council as, councils acting like this for, for really good practical mm. reasons in that they're feeling it. And... Um, in February, we are going to have a National Climate Emergency Summit uh, in Melbourne as part of the Sustainable Living Festival. And if anybody wants to have a look at um, some of the speakers and what's coming up, they can just look at climateemergencysummit.org. Um, there'll be more details soon, but um, there's quite a bit to go on with there already. Yeah, wonderful. We'll, we'll definitely focus more on that in the new year. David, Beautiful. thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. That was David Spratt, who is a research director at the Breakthrough Institute of Climate Restoration and is the co-author of The Climate Co-Red and What Lies Beneath. Up next, we have another song called I've Lied by Archie Roach. Sitting here in a lonely old guest house I'm sure that my life is all through Scratching free And watching the grey mouse I'm making love To the memory of you For without you I'm weak and uncertain And I feel so naked and cold like a window without any curtain my innermost feelings unfold the drink I just had 
wasn't as bad as the first But drinking won't do When it's only for you I thirst I thirst For your kiss It quenches Oh Bernie It's sweeter Than the sweetest Of wine Now you're gone I find myself Yearning For the love that I left behind Nobody can heal The pain that I feel inside And if I said I'm strong And I'm never wrong I've lied I've lied You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. And up next, we have a segment from Indigenous Rights Radio with Charlene Ferris, who's from Cultural Survival. And so with the impacts of climate change increasingly facing Indigenous communities, Charlene speaks with two Indigenous communities about how they are practising resiliency to climate change and by adapting their traditional knowledge. Let's have a listen. The other people have survived. According to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, some of the main observed and projected changes in weather patterns related to global warming include gradual changes like melting of snow and ice, thawing of frozen ground, and shrinking of sea ice, sea level rise and higher water temperatures, increased frequency of hot extremes and heat waves, increased intensity of sudden impacts in the form of weather-related disasters such as tropical cyclones, hurricanes and floods, increases in heavy precipitation events and droughts. Indigenous peoples around the world, because of their close relationships with their respective local environments and ecosystems, are particularly vulnerable to climate change. But Indigenous peoples have survived for thousands of years through their distinct knowledge of Mother Earth. Yurok tribal member Elizabeth Azus takes us through overcoming some of the challenges that her indigenous community experiences in Northern California. She took some time out to talk to us on the 9th of October 2017 when a fire was raging close to where she lives. Elizabeth is very much involved in controlled burning, a hazard reduction technique used in forest management. Good morning Elizabeth, will you give us a brief introduction please? 
Okay, good morning. My name is Elizabeth Azuz. I am a Yurok tribal member and a Karuk descendant. I am the Secretary for Cultural Fire Management Council. I'm in Northern California. Um, we're on the Yurok Reservation, uh, which is a very large piece of property here, um, up and down. It's uh, from the mouth of the river, 44 miles up, and a, ma- a mile on either side of the Klamath River. Elizabeth, thank you for joining us. Tell us about the work that you're doing with CFMC. Yes, so Cultural Fire Management Council works in conjunction with our community. We are working with CAL FIRE, uh, the Forest Service, uh, Hoopa Wildland Fire Department, as well as our own Yurok Wildland Fire Department. And currently, you know, the MOU with the Karuk Tribe allowed us to have some of our young participants red carded and trained uh, in order to not just light fire as traditional prescribed burners, but as to what is necessary to control and maintain a fire if we were to disaster, which in fact is happening currently. Um, many of my in-laws have been evacuated or lost their homes this morning in Sonoma County. And this is something we don't want to happen here. Well, we just finished a successful burn in my group and was very happy to provide elder structure protection. So building this Cultural Fire Management Council has always been to protect our elders, their homes, protect our way of life, to protect our food sources, um, our waterways. And in general, you know, we send up good prayers and good medicine with our root before we even ignite to let the land and the animals know that we're going to bring smoke to them and that we're hoping to heal them. How are indigenous peoples uniquely vulnerable to the impacts of climate change, especially extreme weather? I'm experiencing extreme weather currently with the high winds. However, you know, the fire suppression started in the early 1900s, which basically allowed the land to become suffocated with uh, debris, you know, not just from the land, but from everything in its environment currently. And so for us, you know, to be able to use prescribed burning as a tool to clean up 100 years of fire suppression will hopefully allow our communities to be safer, our animals, our medicinal plants, our basket weaving material, everything that our people depend on day to day, you know, in a daily world where we're not exposed to grocery stores and cities, you know, large amounts of uh, resources. Here, we depend on the land and it depends on us. Can you take us through specific hazard mitigation efforts underway in your community? Absolutely. Um, I just finished a week-long training exchange where I had participants from uh, Oregon and Washington and all over California come in to help us um, do some elder structure protection um, and also to clear some areas along the 169 highway corridor that allowed us to protect multiple homes and families and also restore some of our resources. Elizabeth, talk to us about policies in your community to ensure that public health and life safety issues are addressed. Uh, We are currently um, working on building a community health and wildfire protection plan which basically allows us to um, care for our land, our food securities, um, to help our communities thrive and grow. So for us, you know, building this community health and welfare protection plan and having an MOU with our own tribe, the Yurok tribe, and also with the Karuk tribe allows us to work in conjunction through the Indigenous Peoples Burning Network, which 
gives us a broader scope and range of you know, people and agencies involved so that we could uh, further everyone's safety and uh, need for security. That was Elizabeth Azuz from the Yurok tribe in Northern California. After the 9th of October 2017, the fires have continued in Northern California, leaving dozens dead and many more without shelter. Other Native American tribes have stepped up to assist their neighbors. According to SplinterNews.com, the Grayton Casino in Sonoma County has opened its doors to shelter fire evacuees and first responders and has pledged $1 million to the area's rebuilding effort. The casino is run by the FIGR or Federated Indians of Grayton Rancheria. The Twin Pine Casino Event Center of the Middletown Rancheria of Pomo Indians has also opened its doors to shelter people in the area. These efforts have been officially recognized by the Disaster Relief Community. It is in understanding one's environment that one can prepare for eventualities like wildfires. And this understanding is common with indigenous peoples all over the world. Let's go from fire to ice. Yanni Stephenson from the Sami people will tell us how climate change is affecting people in her community. We contacted her via Skype. Hi, my name is Yanni Stephenson and um, I belong to the Sami people. Uh, and I work for the Sami council. Yani, how are indigenous peoples uniquely vulnerable to climate change? We have survived in in areas where not many other people have survived. For example, in the Arctic or in the in the jungle or in the rainforest because we understand the nature where we live. Um, and we understand we know how to read the signs. We know when it's safe to cross a lake, for example, or we know when the ice are not stable for, for, um, for, for walking on or traveling on. And that has kept, kept us safe. Um, but when, the, when extreme weather comes in or when climate is changing, that knowledge is changing as well. And we are still here, so we are adapting to that knowledge. Tell us how irregular weather patterns are affecting reindeer and people in your community. Well, we we see more frequent events when it comes to rain on snow. So during the the winter time, it shouldn't be raining. It should be snowing. Um, And the temperature can just in 12 hours change almost 30 degrees. Um, and that's something that's very worrying. So from like in the morning, you can have a very, very cold morning. And then in the afternoon, it can be can be hot and melt. The, the snow can be melting. Um, and that's that kind of unstable weather we, we haven't seen before. Uh, so we know nothing of it. We only know, know that when it freezes again or when when the rain has has come on the, the snow and then it freezes uh, it creates an ice crust, um, and that ice crust is difficult for the reindeer because reindeers they smell uh, the lichen under the snow, and and they can smell it f- like up to one and a half meters. Um, and if they don't smell the lichen, they won't they won't dig. They will just be moving on uh, and migrate to another area where they can smell the food. If so, even if you have areas where they have a lot of lichen under the snow, the reindeers won't dig 
they will save that energy in order to find areas with with that food. So some might wander for 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 long distances and might be just be fine with the, with the food underneath. So that's something that we have. That's something that we are struggling heavily with. Um, but also that when they start to dig the ice crust, there's so many ice crusts and they're so thick, so they can't get through it. They can't dig through it. So in some in some communities, they have been um, castrating the reindeer the reindeer males more of them, because it, when you have castrated a, a reindeer, um, they they grow stronger, they become stronger, and then they can help dig and can help the the herd to to reach the ground and to get the lichen. Um, so that's like multiple events. Um, affecting the reindeers and us because the climate is changing and becoming warmer during the winter time. The things that our grandparents have taught us, does it still apply? When we expect rain, for instance, it snows or the sun is out, how can we ensure that we don't lose what we were taught and at the same time adapt because the situation is changing or it has changed? Knowledge is evolving because we are surviving and because like all the things that we have been put through, both from from weather, but also from from society, and from colonizers, um, has been tragic. But we are still here, right? So we are super resilient. We are the most resilient people on earth, I would say. Um, but we also have, we also have been taught how to adapt and to adapt fast, and how to read signs and how to put that together because we have the holistic view. So I think that as or as the climate are changing, our knowledge is continuously updating and changing as well. And I know that for my society, people are talking about weather and how it will affect reindeer and how it will affect food of the reindeer and how it will affect other parts of the nature. Um, and this is something that is generally discussed every day. And people are sharing what they know and then they put pieces and parts together so i think that it orally that's how you share the knowledge with a vast population and for them to understand as well what you are actually saying um but if we were off to publish papers on everything that we have discovered that wouldn't be shared as vast and i think that when that also brings us back to to valid information and that western scientists is not taking our our knowledge as valid enough because we haven't proof as such as or the kind of proof that they need um but we wouldn't share knowledge of how to walk on the ice if it was the wrong knowledge and that's the validation like we have survived with that knowledge and that's why we share it we don't share the things that will actually put you in in danger or would um would disrupt your life so so that's the kind of things that i think that when it comes to climate change we need a different system for validate validation and we need to to take what indigenous peoples inform us seriously thank you yanni stephenson is your community using indigenous knowledge to address climate change or do you have a story idea for us Follow Cultural Survival on Facebook or Twitter or visit us at cs.org. 
You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and that was Charlene Ferris from Cultural Survival speaking on Indigenous Rights Radio. And we're wrapping up for the show. We've had a lot on today. So at 7.15, we had Vivian Langford from Beyond Zero Emissions speaking with a group from Kiribati about how their communities are preparing for climate change. Then at 7.30... Chris Stenton from the Refugee and Asylum Seeker Toy Drive came to talk to us about the charity and how people can help get involved and give toys to asylum seekers in Australia this holiday season. Then at 7.45, we had Jamie Marglin, who is a climate activist, speaking about her organisation Zero Hour. Then at 8, we had David Spratt come on and speak about his work in terms of investigating and promoting the idea of social collapse. And then just then, at 8.12, we had Indigenous Rights Radio with Charlene Ferris speaking about re-adapting community Indigenous knowledge about landscaping and in terms of being more resilient in the face of climate change. Special thanks to Earth Matters, that was before us, and then Stick Together, who are afterwards.